Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I've said a couple times on the show since the start of the year that um, after almost three years of outrunning COVID, uh, Janice and I both finally tested positive the week before Christmas. We both had mild cases. Um, Mine was not much more than a bad cold, although I got a, a cough and it was... I had a hoarse voice for more than a week, um, and her, her, her symptoms were similar. And I, I was incredibly frustrated because I thought I'd done everything to avoid forever getting COVID. I'd have every shot you can get. I wore masks almost everywhere we uh, went, and um, I exercised every day. And then I realized that all around me, people who, like us, had not gotten COVID, suddenly were testing positive. So it felt to us like all of a sudden, everybody who was now getting uh, COVID toward the end of last year. And one reason for that may be uh, because the new variants, the subvariants, are so much more easily transmittable. But that's one of the questions I'll ask a very distinguished panel that we've brought together for today's show. Um, let me start by uh, pointing out that we have Jim Galloway with us, a former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my Friday partner on the show. Jim, thank you for being here. Um, let me mention one thing to you about all this. You know, those of us in the news business realize that there are stories that blow up and are covered endlessly, relentlessly for uh, weeks, months at a time. And then the media moves on. And to some extent, that's kind of what's happened with COVID. It just isn't in the news as it has been and was for so long when the pandemic really hit hard. Yeah, and it's and it's the. Uh, I think part of the problem is that, look, look, uh, this virus in many ways, and in, in, in our panel can tell us tell us whether I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, uh, accurate or not. But this virus has 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 baffled uh, people with far more education than us, and it, it's you know generally in, in in the news business you depend on trajectory. You know you don't know where it's going, but you know the direction. And yeah. here, we, we don't know that. Well, it's been, I, we uh, uh, have added to that. We haven't talked about COVID or public health in general in a very long time on the show. And so I really wanted to get back to it, especially since tomorrow is the third anniversary of the first positive case being um, confirmed in the United States. So let me introduce our panel and uh, begin this conversation We're very happy to have back with us Carlos Del Rio, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean of the Emory School of Medicine and Grady Health Systems, and also, and it's going to become pertinent at some point in the show because I want to ask you about it, uh, Dr. Del Rio, you are the co-director of the Center for AIDS Research 
at Emory. And there's an AIDS story that I'd like to ask you about a little bit later in the show today. But thank you so much for being with us today. Happy to be with you, Bill. Uh, We're joined by Professor Rodney Lynn, Dean of the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. And um, in another way that we're going to uh, uh, add to our conversation today, we should also point out that you um, are uh, have co-chaired a, a, a group at Georgia State University uh, looking at health disparities, and that's going to be part of our conversation today. So thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Bill. And Amber Schmidtke, Professor Amber Schmidtke is back with us too. She is, she has a lot of titles. She's a medical educator and a public health microbiologist, but uh, Amber, Amber, you're also chair of the Division of Natural Sciences and Mathematics at the University of St. Mary. And, and it is, you've, you're the one who for so long in the midst of the pandemic uh, published every day a, uh, a blog in which you really dug deep into what the data looked like on COVID. And you're continuing that work today, yes? Yeah, that's right. Um, almost going on three years now. Um, all right. Well, let's start by looking at some numbers. By the way, I asked the panel, you, you know that one of the hallmarks of this show is we tend to be kind of informal. These are all very distinguished academics, but they've all agreed that if I call them by their first names, I'm not showing any disrespect. So I, I hope you all out there get that. Um, let me just start real quickly the way we used to start shows on COVID by giving you some very basic numbers. Um, as of yesterday, we had 1,173 cases of COVID uh, reported. Um, we had 1,560 people hospitalized, 199 people in ICUs across the state, and 16 people died of COVID yesterday. Um, Carlos Del Rio, start us off. I mean, those numbers are minuscule in comparison to where we used to be. But to what extent does it concern you to see that we have even those numbers right now? Well, Bill, I mean, first of all, let's say, yes, those numbers are much less than what we had before. And, you know, part of what's going on is because, you know, over the the, the epidemic, we have built a certain degree of what we call uh, immunity, uh, you know, wall. So there's, you know, between vaccinations and prior infections and many things, the, the, the COVID we're seeing today is very different than the COVID we're seeing we saw in, for example, 2020 or 2021, the numbers are still pretty high. And, and, and I think part of what we need to emphasize is that I'm in the hospital service right now and I have a couple of patients with COVID and the patients we're seeing with COVID are primarily people over the age of 70. And I'm not talking about, again, we, there's a lot of discussion about who's in the hospital and has COVID. You know, somebody has a car wreck and they get tested and have COVID. That's very different than somebody who's hospitalized with COVID. I'm talking about people, people hospitalized with COVID. And among those hospitalized with COVID, they tend to be over the age of 70. They tend to be people who either were only vaccinated with the initial two doses. They frequently have not been, almost all of them, are not been boosted and certainly have not received the, the bivalent booster. And in my mind, that's what really bothers me. What really concerns me is that we could be preventing a lot of what we're seeing in hospitalizations. We could be preventing a lot of what we're seeing in deaths if we had a better coverage of vaccination, primarily for those over the age of 60, which are really the high-risk population. Um, Amber, that leads to the other data that I was going to share, um, and that is that um, as of right now, uh, 
uh, 56% of Georgians have been fully vaccinated, have had the two uh, vaccines, but only 23% of Georgians have had uh, a, a booster, uh, if not uh, uh, all of the uh, boosters available. Uh, Amber, are you there? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think we've lost Amber for a minute. Um, Rodney Lynn, weigh in on this low vaccination and low booster rate. Well, Bill, I mean, I I think, you know, uh, Carlos uh, just talked about uh, his frustration that people haven't availed themselves of uh, the booster. Uh, And, um, you know, I share that frustration. Uh, I, like you, um, you know, have, have had every shot possible. But I I think over time, uh, there's just been a fatigue with COVID. Uh, And, um, you know, we started to have, uh, you know, people that, you know, say, well, I'm not going to get the booster, you know. So I I think that's a a challenge. And we've um, really need to think about communications. I think that's an area that Amber has some expertise. How are we communicating with the public, um, you know, about COVID uh, and the need to uh, mask in, in um, you know, settings where there are large crowds and we have high COVID rates uh, and also avail ourselves of the uh, available vaccines. So uh, we, we continue to have a lot of work to do uh, in public health and in medicine to uh, really promote uh, all, the, all the tools uh, that we have available to us. So, so Rodney, I agree with Jim. you. And I think one, one, of the, one of the missing pieces in this pandemic, throughout the pandemic, really <clears throat> has been really the the accurate involvement of people who do science communication and marketing because this is this is really a problem of marketing this is really a problem of really not our messaging has been you know for one side we're saying the pandemic is over so if it's over why do i need to get a vaccine uh, i mean there's been so the, the miscommunication is not only just the 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 uh, misinformation it's really we have we have we have failed in doing communication appropriately and i think one of the big lessons is how we need to really do a better job involving our marketing communications people in getting a message out. Yes, and, and this is, Bill, I think this is where fatigue does come in a little bit, uh, and, 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 and straight-up political message. Look, you had, uh, you had Governor Brian Kemp in Davos uh, this week uh, 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 boasting on his early opening of of the state economically during during the during the uh, the height of the covid pandemic uh in in uh, what will be 3 3 years from now uh in in Japan J- Japan is right now is 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 considering downgrading covid from a i guess from a category 2 to a category 5 disease uh on 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 par with the the normal flu and its variations so I, I, but uh, and 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 this is something I, I hope I, I hope we have Amber back on and or or uh, maybe Rodney or Carlos can can address this, but you know the, the the testing issue has has testing gotten better or is it even foggier than it was uh, back in the early days of COVID? Amber, you're with us again. Thank goodness. Yeah, um, you know, it has gotten ever more difficult to see where we are in this pandemic because of some of the challenges that we have with testing. Um, So we've had testing centers that have closed down compared to where we were earlier in the pandemic. Um, They're harder to access. They have limited hours. Um, And we've also seen the rise in popularity of the home antigen test, um, which is incredibly useful for actionable information for those 
people to be able to take action immediately without the help of the healthcare provider, but those results are never reported to the state. So they're never counted. Um, and so that makes for a murkier picture when it comes to seeing where we are. Um, more often than not, um, some of the most reliable indicators that we have are the hospitalization data because they aren't susceptible to that reporting bias. They aren't as susceptible to reporting delays that we see with some of the other public health metrics. Um, but even that has gotten more challenging in the last week because Georgia no longer provides that information on a daily basis to us anymore. Um, that's something that we now have to get on a weekly basis from the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, so it, it, it again, it, it seems like every couple months we run into a new stumbling block in terms of making a cloudier picture, which makes it harder for folks on the ground to figure out where we are. Okay. Um, I want to come back, if I can, to testing, home tests as opposed to PCR tests that you take at a clinic or a hospital or whatever. But, and I want to talk about some of the practical advice that our panel may have for dealing with COVID in this much looser time in which we don't quite think of it the way we did, say, a year ago. Um, but before I do that, I, I think I want to ask a broader question, and I'd love to have each of you uh, respond to it. And, and Amber, as long as the ball's in your court, let me start with you. How serious a problem, given that the cases are milder, typically the deaths are way down, even the number of cases um, are not what they were in the height of the pandemic, how seriously should we be taking COVID now? And why do we need to con continue to take it very seriously? I think the unsatisfying answer is that it depends uh, really on what your unique situation is. Um, you know, for most of us, yeah, we're fully vaccinated. Um, we've had that chance to um, get that immunity built in that way, or maybe we've previously had infection. Um, and like in your experience, Bill, you were you had mild symptoms. Um, so for the average person, um, this may not be a big deal anymore. Um, but we do have a significant or part of our society that has an underlying health condition or who may be immunocompromised for whom a COVID infection could be much more serious. Um, and so for those folks, it, it is a lot more scary. Um, and I think in what I've heard from a lot of them is a, um, a real disappointment um, with the way that their friends and neighbors are not really looking out for their health and safety anymore. Um, so I guess it's kind of, it, it's, um, you know, everybody's doing the best they can with this stuff. But um, yeah, it, for a lot of people, this pandemic is over. Um, for those of us that track the data, it's kind of a frustrating thing to watch because these are infections and deaths and hospitalizations that are potentially preventable. Um, but things are getting better than they have been before. Rodney and then Carlos. Yeah, so we had 500 deaths yesterday from COVID in the United States. Uh, that's a that's a significant uh, number, and I, I when I talk about COVID fatigue, I think you know we, we've seen those numbers in the thousands, right? So you know now we have it at 500. We're all the pandemic's over. Uh, 500 families uh, lost loved ones yesterday, and when you you know look at this over the course of a month, these are really significant losses. Um, we have tools. Uh, to deal with this. I think Amber makes a good point that there's a need for really thinking about individual and household risk, uh, but ensuring that we are promoting uh, the vaccine available boosters, uh, masking uh, as, as appropriate for those that have high risk, all of those are tools that are available that really 
I think will will help to mitigate uh, some of the the, the the impact and the reach of this virus. Uh, so we've got to continue to do that. And, um, you know, I, I'm most concerned about those who Carlos uh, described at the outset uh, that are at greatest risk. Um, so um, we've got more work to do. Carlos? Well, Bill, I will say a couple of things. Number one, we, we have a... Uh, I mean, the virus has changed and we have a highly transmissible virus. At the beginning of the program, you said it very clearly. You've been vaccinated, you've done everything, and you mask, and yet you still get infected. So so one of the things, you know, Tony Fauci, when he got infected, said to me, and he got infected, and about a week later, I got infected, and he said to me, you know, this virus is like a heat-seeking missile. It will eventually find you. And I think that's one thing we need to realize is that you can do everything you want, and likely is you're going to get infected because because this virus has gotten a lot more transmissible than it was. Now, if you're gonna get infected, I mean, obviously the first thing you can do is you should not try to get infected, but if you're gonna get infected, you should be as protected as you possibly can. And that's where the vaccines make a big difference. I think we we also made a very bad uh, messaging in, in the vaccines. The vaccines were never designed to prevent infection. They were designed to prevent severe disease and death. Initially, they had an impact on prevention, and we were all very excited and that, oh, my God, these vaccines prevent infection. Well, that, that, uh, that rosy scenario disappeared very quickly with the emergence of Delta. And when Delta emerged, all of a sudden we realized that vaccines did not prevent infection. Again, they were never designed to prevent infection. But even today, when the virus has mutated significantly, the virus circulating today is very different than the original Wuhan strain, highly, more highly transmissible, et cetera. We still have a virus that we can prevent the the the, uh, the severe complications through vaccination, and I think we have not been able to get that message out. Getting people, if you're going to if you're going to confront this virus, if this virus is going to find you, you need to be as protected as possible, and that means to be up to date in immunizations. I get frustrated with with CDC and with other agencies that they're still tracking the number of people who have received two doses of vaccine. Having received two doses of vaccine today, you might as well not received any. It doesn't make a big difference. So again, I want to emphasize that if you're over the age of 60 and you have not received your bivalent booster, you are really putting yourself at high risk of developing a complication, severe disease and death from this virus. Jim? Uh, uh, yeah, if, look, uh, from, from what I read, and again, I'm, I'm a layman here, uh, the, the latest variant of, of COVID is, 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 is hottest in, in, in the Northeast and in the South. But this is this is this is a, a Georgia network here that we're on, and is there is there any uh, geographically in Georgia, is there uh, is there any difference uh, uh, between COVID spread in Atlanta versus COVID spread in Savannah versus COVID spread in in the in in, in Southwest uh, Georgia where we where we had that 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 terrible terrible outbreak uh, 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 back in in February and March of two thousand. Amber. Yeah, so um, we have seen that uh, we have seen little regional sort of hot spots um, throughout the pandemic, and it seems like COVID takes its turn um, through different parts of the state. Um, right now, uh, in the most recent uh, wave that we've had for the winter, which has mm -hmm. thankfully been milder than what we saw last year with Omicron, um, it did seem to be centered in the me metro Atlanta area, um, but really along the I-75 corridor is where we were seeing it. So all the way down to Valdosta through Tifton, um, we were seeing um, that that's where the hospitalization spikes were taking place, was kind of all up and down that corridor. So um, 
Again, I don't, and unfortunately, because we don't see that information on a regional or, or that granular of a level anymore, I can't tell you that information more recently, but that's where um, the winter wave really kind of took hold. Um, I think it's really interesting when we see these regional dynamics, um, that some of that has to do with population density and travel patterns um, and things like that. Um, but I, I live in the Midwest now, and I'll say that for whatever reason, we've been relatively sheltered from a lot of what um, the South has experienced. Um, one exception was the Delta wave hit uh, Southwest Missouri really hard. Um, and so we were kind of a regional hotspot for a time there. Well, I would assume that the, the vaccination and booster percentages in the Midwest are much higher than they are in the South, which might have some impact on the number of cases. Am I right? Does that make sense, Amber? It would make sense, except that that's not what the data show us. Um, the there, are, I, I mean, that's the funny thing about this. Um, I, for whatever reason, uh, we have a lot of we have some anti-vaccine sentiment or hesitancy in in that pocket of Southwest Missouri too. So um, it it made sense that that's where it took off, um, right? But um, as a whole, I, I think you're right. You know, as a whole, the Midwest is doing pretty well on vaccinations as compared to the South. Right. If I if I may, I'd like to ask you all some just um, practical questions about what we should be doing. Um, we used to have mitigation techniques. We many of us wore masks uh, everywhere. We avoided uh, uh, crowds of people. We maintained social distancing, all that sort of thing. And I'd also like to talk in a practical way a little bit about testing. So, Carlos, let me start with that. Um, when I first uh, felt. Uh, you know, a flu-like cold, whatever it was, um, I wondered, wow, has, have I finally gotten COVID? So I went over to the Walgreens down the street and I got a home test and I took the test and it was negative. And then just to be safe, a day later, because these symptoms were continuing, I took it again and it was negative. I called my primary care doc and she said, you really need a PCR test. And when I got the PCR test, it was positive. So to what extent are home tests reliable compared to the PCR test and why would there be a discrepancy? Well, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's very technical bill, but it's, it's like comparing a formula one race car to a, to a, to a, you know, a BW or a, or a Honda civic, right? I mean, they're both cars, but they're very different. The sensitivities, what they can accomplish are very different. I think exactly what you did is what you need to do. The home tests are, are are very good, but they're very good in the presence of symptoms, and they're very good when they're positive. So it's very useful. If you had said I went, I had symptoms, I went and got myself tested, and I was positive, you're done. You got a diagnosis, you're done. End end of story. But if you're negative, the presence of a negative antigen test does not rule out the disease. And I think that's the important thing to get the message across. Now you have noticed that many of those tests come with with two samples, and with two tests in the package. The reason it comes with two tests in a package is because getting two tests 24 hours apart dramatically increases the sensitivity of the test. So if you're negative, you got symptoms, you repeat the test just like you did, it's still negative, and you're still having symptoms, you go for a PCR. Now, that's very different than if you don't have symptoms. If you don't have symptoms, that's a different story. Now, one thing you can say, though, is that very likely that person with a negative test, with a negative antigen test, and a well-performed antigen test, because again, there's a lot of operation variability here. If you don't obtain the sample appropriate, the test will be negative. But if the test is done the right way and is negative, 
you're likely infected, but not you may not be transmitting. In other words, the amount of virus in your secretions is not high enough for you to be transmitting. So in that sense, it's it's reassuring that at least, you know, maybe you weren't infecting others in your household or close by. So antigen tests are useful to diagnose disease, but in the absence of in, in the negative the presence of a negative test does not rule out disease. And I think that's a message we need to get to people. So what you did is exactly what needs to happen. You go, you get a PCR test. Now we need to emphasize, and again, I don't want to get into, into a lot of doctoring here, but people, especially people over the age of 60, you test positive. The next thing we need to get you is we need to get you into therapy. And we have available therapies that dramatically cut the risk of hospitalization, severe disease, and death among those who have been infected. And we are, have not used the, the, the therapies we have available in our country in an effective way. And I think that to me also produces a lot of frustration. And in that sense, physicians have been largely responsible for this. They really have not known how to use these drugs appropriately in order to help their patients. So we really need to do a better job in what the White House calls the test to treat strategy. We have to do a better job getting people tested and rapidly linked to care so they can then prevent ending up in the hospital. If we see somebody ending up in the hospital with COVID today, that should be a failure of public health. That should be a failure of our processes of testing, treating, and doing the appropriate things. Well, I'm glad you brought up therapies. Um, and Rodney, uh, it, I've read stories uh, it, that really confirm some of what Carlos is saying here. Uh, Paxlovid, which has become a very common uh, 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 treatment for COVID, I, I've been reading that there are many doctors who just haven't prescribed it to the extent that they could be prescribing it. And I will say I'm well over 70. I'm 75. So uh, my doc immediately prescribed uh, 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 Paxlovid for me. My wife is younger than I am. And the same doctor said, I'm not so eager to give it to you. You're not as at, at quite the risk. And I called the doc and I said, please give my wife Paxlovid. And of course she did. But I think that speaks to what uh, what um, Carlos is talking about. Why are doctors kind of hesitant in some cases to give therapies? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, Bill. And um, you know, I'll tell you, CDC has uh, recently reported uh, racial and ethnic disparities in outpatient treatment uh, as it relates to COVID nineteen with black and Hispanic patients receiving treatment with Paxlovid thirty percent less than white non Hispanic population. So, um, you know, I think it, whether in a localized sense in, in your household, but uh, more broadly, uh, we should be concerned uh, that uh, all that need access to uh, this sort of treatment uh, are receiving it. And, and you know, it, it, it appears that that may not be the case. We've certainly seen uh, over time with COVID-19 disparities in access to testing, uh, exposure by frontline workers who are often minorities or individuals with low income, uh, higher case and death rates for those populations. Uh, and this has been worse at times where we've had uh, significant uh, spikes uh, in the virus, uh, like Omicron, um, uh, you know, a year ago. So um, we have a lot of work to do on the disparities front, no, no, no doubt about that. Amber, before we got to get to a break, why don't you jump on, in on this? 
Yeah. So um, I used to teach at a medical school. I used to work with first year medical students. And one thing that came up a lot was, um, you know, they really have to kind of think through um, how much can we help the person sitting in front of us versus how much will that medication cause unintended side effects for them. Um, And so I think that um, every patient physician interaction is kind of that um, way in that balance. And so in a situation like yours, Bill, of course, that makes sense, right? Because you are at a heightened risk. Um, m- when my husband had COVID and he wanted, uh, <laughs> you know, he's a pretty healthy 42 year old man and wanted um, Paxlovid, they said no, you know, and it's because he didn't have any risk factors. Um, and it really wasn't going to shorten the duration of his disease all that much. And so in his case, the therapeutic benefit of doing that was really kind of negligible. Um, and, and I think at that time, there may have been a shortage of Paxlovid or it was in limited uh, supply. And so um, that was the decision that was made there. I think that what we want to be careful about, um, you know, is making sure that we're using drugs appropriately because we've had um, a lot of examples in the past of antibiotics being misused, leading to antibiotic resistance. Um, and so um, I, I would just caution people um, away from like sort of the demanding medication kind of um, perspective. Um, We really just need to trust our physicians that they're acting in our best interest. Of course, advocate for yourself, but um, that would just, I'm I'm always a big fan of antibiotic stewardship and in this case, antiviral stewardship and making sure we're making sound decisions. Uh, Just to finish that conversation before the break, I think the last guidance I saw from CDC on this, Carlos, was people over 60, particularly should be receiving therapies like like Paxlovid, right? Yeah, that is correct, Bill. I mean, I think that the clinical data suggests that the people that are going to get the maximum benefit are those over the age of 60 and those with underlying conditions. And, you know, we have to remind people that there's not only Paxlovid, there's also another drug called malnupiravir that has been also shown to be effective. And I think we have two treatment options. A lot of times Paxlovid is not given, because it has a lot of drug-drug interactions. Well, you know, if, you, if you're concerned about drug-drug interactions, you could use them also malnupiravir. So, so somebody who knows how to prescribe these drugs can do it appropriately. What I worry about is a lot of people still not even knowing that they, you know, there was an MMWR mm-hmm. recently talked about why are people not getting their boosters? Well, a lot of them don't even know they're out there. Again, it goes to marketing. We really have not done a good job of telling people what's available, what's available to them. And we have to emphasize in our country, we are privileged. We have a lot of tools. We have boosters. We have drugs like malpiravir, like Paxlovid. We, we are privileged. We have to be able to use these tools. And we have not been able, as public health and as healthcare systems, to really get the appropriate message out to people about how to better use these drugs and how to better use these approaches. All right. I got to get to, uh, by the way, uh, Carlos, thank you for uh, uh, pronouncing that uh, drug correctly. That's what I took, malnupiravir, but I could never pronounce it. So (laughs) I just said Paxlovid instead. We're going to get to our first break. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway and I are joined today by a distinguished panel of public health professionals, Amber Schmitke, 
uh, Rodney Lynn and Carlos Del Rio. Jim, I want to give you a chance to start off this segment of the show. Uh, yeah, if I, if I could, uh, to, to the panel, uh, I, I'm not particular about who answers this one first, but uh, this, we're, 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 we're essentially at the, the, the third anniversary of COVID coming to, to, to the United States. Uh, it hit Georgia fairly quickly and very hard. And, and I guess my, my, is, is Georgia's healthcare system stronger? Has it become stronger because of COVID? Has it, or has it become weaker because of COVID? What, what's been the impact overall on, on the ability of, of, of Georgians to, to receive and locate healthcare? Well, if I could, I'd love to first, I'd love to hear Carlos Del Rio's response to that. And then Rodney Lynn, I would love to hear your perspective, especially in terms of health disparities. So let's do both. Carlos, if you'll start and then we'll bring you in on this, Rodney. Well, you know, I think I would say, Jim, that, that healthcare <laughs> systems uh, throughout this country have been significantly impacted by COVID and are, are, are trying to recover. The uh, many healthcare systems right now are are financially in significant distress. And part of it has been because a lot of people have left healthcare. So one of the challenges we're having is with nursing, with laboratory technicians, with personnel, uh, physicians. I mean, people are not, they have left healthcare and we're having, we're paying premium rates primarily for, for example, nurses and technicians and, and laboratory techs and other uh, personnel. So healthcare systems in general, I think have been weakened by COVID and we are, we are not in a better position than where we were before. If you try to go to a hospital bed right now, the hospitals are, are overwhelmed. They're busy. We're in continuously on diversion. And part of it is, is, is not COVID. It's because there are a lot of people with other diseases. Where diseases have increased, uh, people that delayed their health care. Uh, there's a lot more violence. There's a lot more gunshot wounds. There's a lot more uh, you know, drug addiction, drug addiction hospitalizations. So hospital systems, your local hospital is under significant distress. And I want to emphasize this to people to realize that frequently people get surprised and say, oh my God, I have to go to the hospital and there were no beds available. Well, welcome to my world. That's that's exactly what I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So COVID has weakened our healthcare systems and we have not done the appropriate look back and really the investment necessary to say, what do we do going forward so this doesn't happen again? We are threading in, in, in thin ice. Um, yeah, Rodney, I, mean, I would um, assume, that, uh, go ahead. You just go ahead. Well, yeah, I want to speak about, I take from Jim's question, uh, a question about readiness uh, for a future pandemic. And I'm going to start there and then say a word about disparities. I think I would ask the question, Jim, are, are, are state and local public health systems adequately resourced? Uh, I think the answer is no. Uh, are the data systems that we developed and used adequate? Uh, I think the answer is no, we're working on it. Um, have we learned the adequate lessons about bringing together public, private, you know, sectors to respond? I'm not sure we have that playbook uh, for, written up yet. So uh, I think there is much work to do. And we talked about communication earlier. How do we communicate with the public? Are we dealing with misinformation and disinformation uh, well enough? So there, there's lots to, of work to do to, to really think about uh, readiness. Uh, I think your question about uh, the healthcare system, I would really uh, say when I think about disparities, uh, I would remind uh, in our listeners that health is shaped uh, in large part uh, by where you live. 
Uh, and uh, it's shaped by where you live because where you live uh, says a lot about the access that you have to resources, healthcare being just one of them. Um, you know, do you have safe housing? Do you have an environment that is free of toxins? Do you have access to healthy foods? Uh, are there good schools, um, parks and green spaces? I could go on and on. Uh, we could do a whole show, Bill, about, you know, what, what really drives health. Uh, and I, you know, don't just fear, I feel that, that we're not making adequate progress in this space to really think holistically about how we improve health, particularly for those that are most vulnerable. We can work on health in narrow ways. That is, did we increase access to healthcare? Did we expand Medicaid? Uh, did we promote uh, clean air and water and affordable housing? That th those are each sort of narrow, or we can think more holistically about um, uh, whole of community approaches. Um, you know, East Lake is a great example of purpose-built communities where uh, they really brought together a wide range of stakeholders, public and private resources, and looked at all the social determinants that really uh, dictate uh, the health of the community, uh, employment, housing, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And so we have a lot of work to do. And I want to say that I think it really requires collaborative effort. Um, like I said, public, private, philanthropy, Democrats and Republicans, people of all backgrounds really agreeing on what a safe and health promoting community looks like. So you know, I think there are some other examples. Uh, Atlanta's West Side is making progress. Uh, Grove Park is well on its way. Uh, so, you know, there, there's work happening, but we need to elevate it and do more of it. You know, um, Amber, it strikes me that what Rodney, uh, when he talks about that, uh, places like Eastlake, which was the first of those purpose-built communities that really tried to bring together uh, resources from all sectors, and then the West Side Project in Atlanta going on now is another example of a, a, a people, foundations and others, educators coming together. That's not as, and perhaps health outcomes will be improving in those communities because of all this. That's not the case in large parts of rural Georgia, where there aren't the resources to accomplish the same kinds of goals. Yeah, I mean, quite right. I mean, uh, when I was at Mercer University School of Medicine in Macon, I mean, that was one of our big issues was the rural versus urban divide um, and how rural communities were being served. Um, just like the same issues you have in urban communities, you're going to have in some of those rural ones, where maybe the closest access point to food is a Dollar Tree um, or, or something like that, a convenience source sort of place where it's not really where you get fresh fruits and vegetables um, and um, you know, we saw impacts on education during COVID-19 in rural counties um, because of the limited availability of broadband internet. Um, and so it, it, I, I, I appreciate what Rodney's saying about the holistic approach to public health because um, public health really touches so many different um, parts of our society um, to making totally healthy individuals. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm very concerned about what's going on in rural communities. We're seeing hospitals and clinics shutting down in rural spaces, um, which is going to further limit um, a person's access to preventative care, um, which can set them up for some of those underlying conditions that make them more susceptible to something like COVID-19 or influenza um, or some of the other um, kind of hot button um, infections that we get worried about. Jim, you alerted me to a glaring example of a healthcare disparity. Um, 
Kathleen Toomey, the commissioner of public health for the state of Georgia, testified yesterday at the budget hearings defending her uh, budget. And she was asked about how COVID had impacted her department and and the health care in the state. And she, uh, Jim, gave out some really uh, disturbing numbers that um, more maternal mortality uh, numbers really jumped during COVID, and they especially jumped for uh, 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 black women. 22.7 deaths per 100,000 births for white women, 48.6 deaths per 100,000 for black women, more than double. That's truly disturbing, Jim. I'm glad you brought that to our attention. Yeah, and those and and those are the, those are the numbers we know about. Uh, what, what what Toomey was saying was was that that the new numbers have are, are have not yet been released, uh, and 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 they're going to be even higher than that. I mean, this is an area uh, of public health where where Georgia. I mean, there there are some stats. I think uh, maybe from from 2017 or so. Some stats that said Georgia ranks lower than Uzbekistan when it comes to maternal mortality, and and that's just. That's just shameful. There's been, there has been some action there uh, in, in in recent years in the legislature to kind of increase um, uh, medical coverage, uh, Medicaid coverage for 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 pregnant and new and new mothers, uh, because that's where a lot of the the, the deaths are, are are occurring postpartum. But still, it's uh, uh, not nearly enough. All right, I've got to get to the final break of the show, but there's a lot more I really would love to ask the panel about. And we'll get to at least some of that after these messages. Rodney Lynn, before we move on, your thoughts on the uh, the latest news on maternal mortality rates and the disparity between black and white uh, mothers? Well, obviously, uh, disturbing uh, data. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think it's reflective of uh, the lived experience of uh, uh, you know, African Americans uh, in 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 Georgia, and um, you know this really you know is something we, we we've got to come to grips with and and work on. Uh, there's no biological difference uh, between uh, races here, uh, and the outcomes are are, are telling. Uh, so we've got to really look at uh, what is the lived experience of uh, black women uh, in Georgia and why are uh, we tolerating uh, this disparity in outcomes? Uh, I think there's more that we can do uh, to ensure that there's early access uh, to health care. But as I, you know, I think Medicaid expansion is one of those. Um, but I also stated earlier that there is a whole host of things that we can do both narrowly and holistically uh, to to improve the lived experience uh, of African-American and other minority populations yeah. uh, in the state. Yeah. So, you know, those, you. those are things I'd like to see us uh, working on. Thank you for that. Carlos, I, I've said on this show frequently that those of you who work in public health are truly some of the her- best, biggest heroes in my life. I admire your work enormously. You talked a little while ago about a conversation you had with Anthony Fauci at one point, and I'm wondering what you think about the hit public health leaders, public health doctors, um, have taken as a result 
of the Trump administration's attacks on uh, on on public health. I'm try- not trying to drag you into a deep political partisan kind of conversation, but in fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene, now a member of the House Oversight Committee, has said that she wants to launch a criminal investigation of Anthony Fauci. What to what extent? Do you think that's going to have an impact on how you all in your field try to do your work and keep the public informed in intelligent ways about protecting themselves? Well, Bill, this has been one of the hardest parts of this whole pandemic, right? Nobody predicted the attacks on public health, the attacks on healthcare workers, uh, the vicious attacks that we've all been victims of. Is not just as Dr. Fauci, but it goes all the way down to to people like me, I have received personal threats, uh, including uh, uh, threats to my family and to to my to my life uh, during this pandemic. This is not uh, this is not easy, and I think for many people, this has been disheartening. Uh, talking to Dr. Toomey, she said how you know many workers in public health have been attacked by setting up vaccination sites. So I think you know public health and and the public health infrastructure needs to regain the trust and the respect, and we really have to lower the uh, the the heat. We really need to bring down the level of conversation. I think we can disagree with each other, but we should not be disagreeable. I think the level of, 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 of aggression that we're seeing is simply not for not good for any of any one of us. We all need public health. Amber. Yeah, you know, like Carlos, I've also received some threats over time, um, and that's been really kind of scary at times. And I think that. Um, you know, there's there's always been an association of politics and public health. I mean, people that try to say that public health is apolitical are really kind of deluding themselves. Um, we've always worked together. Um, and so it is um, a hard thing to kind of see that division that takes place. But I think what really has stemmed or undergirded the political animosity towards public health has really been um, misinformation and disinformation. Um, I think that's really the root cause of a lot of the um, political divisiveness that we've seen regarding um, public health. And that is a tale as old as time. I mean, you go back to the original um, cowpox vaccines um, and you see sort of the misinformation, disinformation thing there. And so it's something that's been with us a long time and we still clearly have not mastered um, is, is how to walk that um, that walk. And so I think that um, it certainly didn't help to have that situation go on. But I just, um, there are people working in public health every day who don't care who the elected leader is. They're there to serve their public. Um, and I think that those are really the heroes that you're talking about, Bill, are the people that serve day in and day out um, in those roles to make sure that their communities know um, the data that's important to them, that they are constantly working to try to improve um, the, the, the health of their communities. Yeah, I mean, hearing uh, from Carlos and and Amber, uh, you know, and and you know, stating the importance of public health, just you know, reminds me that you know we should remember that much of the gains in life expectancy in the 20th century was a function of public health work. Um, you know, sanitation, uh, access to clean water, um, you know, workplace safety, all, access to healthcare, all of these things. Have made an in, in, incredible difference in population health, uh, and that is the place from which public health is coming. It's it's seeking to really improve population health, and so it's unfortunate that there are you know threats and aggression in this way. We just need to step back and remember the big picture and the function of public health is really there to serve all of us. Jim, 
Yeah, and, and, and we we need to remember, this is not just an, uh, a, a phenomenon in the United mm-hmm. States. This is a this has been a worldwide, worldwide phenomenon. I mean, Boris Johnson uh, in Britain uh, mm-hmm. uh, lost his lost his his uh, his leadership post in large part because uh, he he flouted the the very COVID uh, regulations that he was imposing. Uh, this week, we've just had the uh, the announcement by by uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, that she is going to 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 vacate her her post uh, in large part because of the hard line she took on COVID. Mm. Um, all right. I, I, if you don't mind, I, I do want to, with the last couple of minutes that we have here, turn to another uh, public health issue. And, and it's because, Carlos Del Rio, we're fortunate to have you on the show when this news breaks. Um, you have done an enormous amount of research in HIV. That's been one of your main uh, uh, areas of of concern over the decades. We just learned yesterday that um, a the latest effort at creating a, uh, a, a vaccination uh, to protect people against HIV is not working and the, the work on it will discontinue. HIV is still an enormous problem. In parts of Atlanta, it continues to be an enormous problem. So my question is, what does that mean? Where do we stand on dealing with HIV, Carlos? Well, you know, Bill, that could be a topic for a whole hour of conversation. But suffice to say that, again, racial and ethnic disparities drive this this epidemic, right? The epidemic of HIV continues to be an epidemic that disproportionately affects African-American and Hispanics. And more importantly, those uh, men who have sex with men and, and transgender individuals. The, uh, and primarily those living in poverty <clears throat> and have with many social determinants of health driving the transmission and the outcomes of the disease. <clears throat> Developing a vaccine has been one of the greatest challenges scientifically and also has been one of the greatest disappointments. For me and others who have been working on HIV for years and have been working on HIV vaccines, the results of the Mosaico study are yet again a, a reminder that we're nowhere close to having an HIV vaccine, how lucky we were, how easy it was to develop a vaccine for COVID, how incredibly hard has been to develop a vaccine for HIV is not because of lack of resources, not because of lack of, of expertise. It's simply because it's been incredibly, incredibly hard. But we made other progresses. We made other advances. And antiretroviral therapy today is clearly one of those. And we can give drugs to prevent people from getting HIV, and that's called PrEP. So we have other tools available in the toolbox, and we need to do a better job in cities like Atlanta to really scale up PrEP. We cannot wait for a vaccine. We have tools available to us right now that could dramatically decrease the number of people who get infected with HIV. And that takes us right back, Rodney, as uh, Carlos pointed out, to health disparities. Because where HIV is at its worst in the Atlanta, uh, uh, zip codes across the city are in black neighborhoods. Yes? Yes, uh, that, that that is true. And, um, you know, I... I Again, you know, um, Bill, I think we've come up with two or three shows you could do just in this hour that we've had together. Uh, All right. uh, The issue of disparities continues to be one that we we can bring policymakers in and have discussion. We can bring scientists in. There's a lot we can do to talk about in advance this, this, uh, this topic. I'll take you up on that. I'll do, I'll do all of that thing. We'll do an HIV show. We'll do a health disparity show. I'm glad to do all that right. with all of you. Uh, Rodney, Lynn, Amber Schmidke, um, and Carlos Del Rio, Jim Galloway, thank you all for really a conversation that I certainly learned about uh, a lot about today, and I think our listeners would say the same. 
We are completely out of time for today's show. We're back, of course, with a brand new show on Monday. In the meantime, I just want to give a quick shout out to a great team here at Political Rewind. Our engineers, Victoria Evans-Cash, Jay Cook, Chase McGee, and Natalie Mendenhall, our senior producer. Thank you for all you're doing to make Political Rewind so good. All right, that's it. We're back on Monday. I'm Bill Liggett. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.